Hello, listeners. Welcome back to the Morning Report podcast supported by the St. Paul's Hospital Foundation and QXMD. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based practice in clinical practice. Check out READ for easy access to research personalized for you, calculate for over 400 easy-to-use decision support tools, and learn to earn CME online in minutes per day. Try them today at qxmd.com apps. Again, that's qxmd.com apps. This episode is an update on a previous episode titled Exploding Organs. If you haven't already heard it, I suggest you literally drop whatever you're doing right now and go have a listen. It's my pleasure to introduce our special guest today, Carol and Cameron. Thank you both so much for coming in to see you're us. You're welcome. I'm going to give a little summary of your case because it's quite complicated and the episode that we did on you came out quite a while ago. So I'm going to just breeze through what was a really long intense period in your lives, Mm -hmm. um, but but we will come back to it. So Cameron's a gentleman uh, who became unwell in his mid-50s. He has a past medical history of seronegative rheumatoid arthritis diagnosed in 2011, also unexplained cytopenias and splenomegaly that were felt to be possibly Felty's syndrome and high blood pressure. In 2015, he became unwell having recurrent spontaneous intra-abdominal bleeds He had a right nephrectomy in 2015, a hepatic lobectomy later that year, left renal bleed with pseudoaneurysm in 2016, left renal artery dissection and pseudoaneurysm rupture in 2018. Pathology from one of his early nephrectomies demonstrated focal acute necrotizing arteritis with secondary focal hemorrhagic infarction. Serologies only identified a weekly positive ANA, uh, 2.8, an SSA of 134, an IgG that was elevated at 19, but later IgG4s came back as normal, and minimally elevated inflammatory markers. He had unusual angiography that initially demonstrated evidence of what was thought to be fibromuscular dysplasia with multiple pseudoaneurysms. However, these resolved on repeat imaging around 10 days later. It's unclear if he had definite immune uh, response to immune suppression early on, but we'll come to that later in his story. And then in April of 2018, he was found to have circumferential stranding around the lower abdominal aorta and iliac arteries, but that resolved on repeat imaging in 2018 after the initiation of cyclophosphamide. He has still had a very complicated course, and since March of this year has been on rituximab therapy instead of cyclophosphamide. In terms of follow-up for some of the labs and investigations that we were talking about during our actual episode, I'll just update those now. So his IgG4 subclass came back as normal. His ANA is now negative. VDRL, looking back, was actually negative. He had a bone marrow biopsy, which didn't show any clear etiology for his symptoms. And he was actually seen by medical genetics for the question of vascular ehlers downlos And they said that he really didn't fit that picture and sent off the genetic testing, which we'll talk about as well. Additionally, he had a recent biopsy of his left thigh, and the results of that I'll read that to you. Suggestive of vasculitis involving cutaneous and subcutaneous small vessels with no evidence of lymphoma. So those are the updates that I'm aware of. But I want to hear from you guys how you've been doing in the last, let's say, few months. Well, the last few months, I'm basically um, tired all the time. Uh, I have no energy and I get winded really easy. That's pretty much it. And then the only other thing I've got is the base of my toes are all numb. I can't feel them at all. 
and I've got what feels like a sunburn, but it's not on the skin. You can't see it. It's under the skin. Like if you touch it, it hurts, but to look at it, it, doesn't, it looks normal. That's about it. Can you contrast that to kind of your level of energy and lifestyle before you got sick? Oh, like, I'm so sorry. Like? Well, the thing is, this when I went in in August to get the uh, cauterization of my aneurysm, the last time I was in the hospital, I bounced back in three weeks. I was ready to go back to work. This time I haven't bounced back. I've been, I've had lung infections, uh, and like I say, I've been constantly tired. I got no, like no energy, no wind, and we can't seem to figure that out. That's the big problem right now. Carol, what was he like before he started getting sick? Normal. You know, he was able to do things. We were able to go out and do things, but now it's he's just a homebody and has no energy to go out and do anything. And we'll come back to that, but I want to, maybe, maybe this is a good point, but what is your understanding of what your diagnosis is? All I've been told is that I got vasculitis and an autoimmune disease. That's all they've told me. And I've gone online and looked it up a little bit, so I kind of have as I understand it. But there's so many autoimmune diseases out there, and from what I've read, none of them destroy your organs. They'll shut your organs down, but they don't, you know, blow them apart like it's happened to me. So I don't know what's going on. I really don't. So I think that probably your many of your physicians and and the other the rest of the healthcare team probably are in about the same ballpark as you were. Mm-hmm. What? It's such an unusual case, and you you simply lack some of the features that push us in one direction. Like when you saw genetics, they said you really don't have the features that go with these mm-hmm. genetic syndromes. Yeah, uh, you see rheumatology, and they say this uh, this is probably vasculitis, well, see, like, but it's so unusual. You take my first kidney, when my right kidney went, they said it was like an embolism inside a blood vessel that when it blew apart, it blew my kidney apart. Mm-hmm. But you take my left kidney. When it bled out, it's like someone took a knife and made a perfect surgical incision in it. Mm-hmm. They, they cut it open. And no one can explain that. How does that happen? It wasn't a tear. It wasn't a rip. It was a perfectly neat cut, which they were, you know, they were able to sew it back together. So, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know how to explain it. I really don't. My liver was like someone grabbed it and tore a piece off, you know, so I don't know. What is it like moving through the medical system without a clear, perhaps a, a very specific diagnosis? What is that? feel like frustrating very yeah, frustrating yeah, that's... because when he's in st paul's i mean mostly we see the residents and i know they're not you know fully up to speed on everything no matter which doctor you talk to you get a different opinion over the same thing so it we find it very frustrating that it doesn't seem like the doctors are on the same page either and our family doctor says one thing our rheumatologist says something else and the hematologist says something different too yeah. so we're kind of and going the big like, thing for me is <laughs> When I'm in St. Paul, I mean, I've had excellent service here. There's been no no issues that way. But it seems like the minute they kick me out, I'm forgotten. Like, I, I almost wish they would take someone like you and say, okay, figure out what's wrong with this guy. Do what you got to do. Research it. You know, bring him down for tests. Do whatever you got to do. Let's find out. What's, but it seems like once I'm out of here, I'm just kind of forgotten, you know, and I until the next time I bleed out. So, and I'm getting tired of getting cut open. You know, I've been open like four times now. And What is your preference between someone saying I don't know or someone kind of making an educated guess I'd rather take an educated guess mm-hmm. you know I don't know means you, you, you like you're not trying to me right if they say well it could be this or it could be that. okay well let's 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 go after it you know test what you want let's let's rule out what it isn't and let's see if maybe this was what it is you know 
So that's, that's for me is the big thing. Just, you know, just like when I was in here, I had one guy come in and yeah, you're going to probably lose your kidney. And finally I said, enough, don't come back in this room again. I'm going to walk out of here with a kidney because I don't want to be on dialysis for the rest of my life. And he kind of got the, oh yeah, I, you know, I'm, I'm speaking very negative. And I said, no, I don't want any negativity. I can't handle that. So, and he came around. So everything was good after that, you know, so, but yeah, I, that's the biggest thing. Just don't tell me you don't know. Just saying we're trying to find it out. That's all I'm asking, you know. Yeah, even if you're, you know, BSing me, I don't care. Who did you find were your biggest helpers or biggest allies inside of the hospital? Because I think sometimes from the doctor's side, we're whipping around seeing a lot, potentially a yeah. lot of people, a lot of complicated yeah. folks, hopefully not as complicated as you all day, but but other people too. And I think the time that you're, you're able to devote to each individual person is it's short. Who did you find to be I found um, supportive? Well, the nurses were really good, but they could right. only go so far. Like, you know, and like I, and then there'd be the next guy in line before the head guy. And the head guy I'd see like maybe once a week. He'd drop, how you down, you go on, and away you go again. So the, the sort of the intermediate fella, like I, I kept, um, my sister and my two sisters and my mother both had brain tumors. So I said to the one guy, I said, look, let's just scan my head. Let's just make, you guys have never done it. Let's make sure there's nothing floating around up there that could be causing problems. So they did a, a head scan and they found a brain tumor. They said, it's not nothing to worry about. You've had it for three years and it's not growing. So, you know, I'm going, well, brain doing your head can't be good. Sounds serious. But yeah, but anyway, you know, and I mean, he was, I wish I could remember his name now. But if we, if I said, let's try this and it wasn't too cause, he said, well, let's give it a try. We've got nothing to lose, right? You know, so. And that was a, you think a resident? Or that a would be a resident. Yeah. Yeah. They were probably the best and they answered all my questions to the best of their knowledge. And yeah, they were really super. Outside of the medical team, you know, there's the allied health, there's the physiotherapists yeah. and social yeah. workers and um, and pretty extensive kind of support staff. Did you interact much with those services? Not a whole lot. It was usually they came in, how are you doing? And, you know, can we help you in any way? And if, and if there was nothing I could do, I said, no, and then I, I might not see them again for the rest of the, the time I was in the hospital. I've usually been in there about a month every time. So the biggest thing for me was when the, the, a resident or a head guy would bring in a teaching class, you know, four or five students. I'd say to the students, ask any question you want. Don't think it's stupid because your stupid question might be the trigger. It might be something that you just read or heard about and all of a sudden, hey, that's it. That's the, that's the answer. You know, so, but they were, it's almost like they were terrified to, to say anything in front of the head guy. So I'd say, well, come on back after he's gone. You know, like, <laughs> but answer, I said, answer me anything you want. I'm, I'm going to, you know, BS you. I'll tell you flat out. You know what I know. So, what does that feel like to? Because to a degree, you are like this teaching case, right? Where, mm -hmm. yeah, not. Yeah, I'm a teaching case. Yeah, it's it's not it's not like um, you're not on display exactly. Like it's not a zoo, but we are bringing people by oh, yeah. to come yeah, and see yeah. you and come and talk to yeah, you. I'm fresh meat on the table, yeah. and, and that's that's how we as as um, residents and med students yeah. like that's how we have to learn. We yeah. have to talk to patients, yeah. and we have to look stupid in front of staff, and sometimes look smart periodically, but. It sounds like you were actually okay with that experience. You oh, I had okay no problem with that whatsoever. Like I say, I wanted to figure out what was wrong with me. And if one of them guys all of a sudden out of the blue came up with the answer, hey, problem solved, right? And we can't all have all the answers. And we're all listening to different things. And and he might, like I say, one of the, one of the resident or the students might have heard something on the radio or read something in an obscure article that, hey, could this possibly be it? You know, so yeah. No, I was open to anything. I didn't care. Do you guys 
reflect on kind of what it means to have gone from being a generally uh, rheumatoid arthritis, mm-hmm. sure, and, and low blood counts, but generally you were a healthy, very physically active yeah. guy. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, how does this experience kind it's, of... It's frustrating. It's like, you know, I'm 60 years old now. Uh, you know, I'm not getting any younger, but I don't want to live the rest of my life like this. I mean, God, if I can even get half back what I had before, I'd be happy. Just not being able to do anything. I say, if I go out and mow the lawn, it takes me two hours. I can make two passes and I got to sit down for 15 minutes to catch my breath. And we've asked if I had COPD, which a friend of mine had. And they say, no, you don't have that. So I'm going, well, why am I always out of breath? Why can't I? You know, my oxygen levels, when you test it, is up there. But it seems like my oxygen is not going from my lungs to my organs. So we don't know what's going on there. That's the biggest problem. Outside <laughs> of outside of the hospital, uh, you guys, you were t- telling me that you were doing research on your own you're trying to look into vasculitis and what that means yeah i just want to know what it is that's all yeah Yeah. have you guys found any resources that have been really particularly helpful to you guys as patients with chronic diseases no not really why do you think that is well there's a lot of websites so you have to go through and say okay is this one creditable or you know what so i mean when i look at things i try and go well okay if we're looking at arthritis i go to the arthritis society one or if i'm going to one on vasculitis you know so you're trying to weed through what and is reputable the, the best guys and yeah. what is you know yeah i mean ask md is not always an accurate thing because you, you get so many posts on it and whatever so it, it's trying to weed out what do you think is correct and not how do you make that determination well, like I say, it's very difficult, and sometimes I just, you know, write down my questions, and when he has an appointment, I tag along with him yeah. and, and ask the doctor. And Yeah, because I definitely don't want to take one drug and then take another one that has an adverse effect. Sure. And we have been, our pharmacist has caught a couple yeah. like that, and I said, no, no, you don't want to take these two together. So, so you, yeah. in addition to all the things that your treatment team is doing for you, you also want to find things that you can also contribute. You also want to try and find things that you yeah, guys can do yeah, on definitely, yeah, your side yeah. because, yeah. Like if it's, if it's what I eat or what I drink or, or exercise mm-hmm. or, or, you know, don't do this or do that. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I mean, I'll do it if that, if it'll help. Yeah. I think so. So what our podcast usually has is cases, very unusual cases. Some don't have solutions like your own. Some do have solutions, but are quite unusual. But the thing that's shared by those cases is that while the person is sick until a diagnosis is reached, what do you look up on the internet? Like, what is the website? What do you type in? And therefore, if, if you're trying to figure out, like, what, what are the dietary changes that may help? So like, like when I looked you don't up even au- know the, the name of the diagnosis. Yeah, like when I looked up autoimmune one day, I sat down for probably about three hours. So I punched up autoimmune disease and it showed, I think there was basically eight or 10 of them. And then, okay, so I read that site. Then I went to another site and it basically said the same thing. So three or four sites all said roughly the same description. So I knew, okay, that's, that's what it is. There was a couple that came really out way off in left field and said, no, I'm not, I'm not going to worry about those because those guys are, you know, they're not thinking on the same page. If you got 10 that all say the same thing, it's pretty, pretty, probably a pretty accurate diagnosis. So that's kind of what we look for when we go on the internet. If it's, if two or three sites have the same thing, the same diagnosis or, or the same description, then that's probably the most accurate one. On the one hand, you don't know what information is accurate online. You want to be pointed to accurate information online or elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Many or many or all of your doctors can't possibly know everything about the various yeah, that's right. yeah. interacting diseases that you have. Mm-hmm. There is no one person who, who could. 
you do want answers of some kind, but one of the answers that you really don't want to hear is I don't know. And sometimes I don't know is actually the only answer. Oh yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, if that's all it is, I'm going to take it, you know, but but we're, you know, we're trying to look at different things of, you know, is there something we can change personally and see if it makes any difference. So I, I would love to know what brought on the first episode. Like what caused my right kidney to explode? I mean, there, there must have been something in the biopsy that said, this is what caused it. It was a cell rupture. It was an artery rupture. It was a, you know, whatever, right? And we never did get an answer on that. Never. But I think it was in too many pieces for them to actually. Well, say it looked like ground up hamburgers, what it looked like. So, <laughs> yeah, I think you guys, like, clearly you, like your doctors, you're wrestling with the complexity of all the information mm-hmm. you've gathered. Yes, you had a biopsy, you had a whole organ removed or pieces of some of your organs taken mm-hmm. out. Um, why can't we figure out what's going on when you look at it under a microscope? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think something that I have kind of gradually learned over time is that even when they look at it under a microscope or even when you send the blood test, there is still an art to that science. Mm -hmm. So just because you can see it under the microscope, it doesn't really mean that you um, you know exactly what's wrong. You may be seeing the consequence of a much deeper biology. And so, you know, you're right. I think everyone has that that same wish that we figure out, why did you have the first, what set it all I think the very first episode was the telltale. If we could have figured it out then, we might have prevented the other ones, you know. And and my biggest fear now is it's got my liver, it's got both my kidneys. What is it going to hit next? Is it going to go after my heart? Is it going to go after my lungs? Yeah. It's incredible, yeah. It- so obviously you guys have navigated the medical system for a, a number of years now and you're kind of veterans of visiting multiple hospitals <laughs> yeah, I guess, and yeah. seeing lots of different doctors and all sorts yeah. of different residents, med students and so on. Do you have advice for other folks, not with your specific disease, because I've never seen one before, but other people who have chronic diseases, my, no clear answer. The only thing I is. could say to anybody with my disease or anything resembling it, especially where you're starting to lose some organs, where they're having to take these out, is just think positive. Just I'm, I'm going to walk out of here with my kidney. I'm going to walk out of here with my lungs. I'm going to walk out of here on my own. And I guess it's the mind over matter. If you really feel that way and really believe it and, and make sure the people that come in your room feel the same way. If they got negative, don't have them in there because it's, it's a killer. It'll just bring you right down. You're going to, you're going to survive it. You're going to, you're going to get through it, you know. And that's about the only thing I can say. And that's what every time I go, I don't mind going to hospitals now. I'll, I'll stay a month without a shower. I have to, I don't care. But you're, I think you're a good sport. Yeah. But I, yeah, sometimes you're pretty stinky, but, but I mean, I no, think positive the, the whole time and just, I'm going to get out of here. We're going to figure it out. We're going to somehow, we're going to trip over it and we're going to figure it out. Yeah. How does your treatment team help you keep that positive attitude? My treatments have been really good. Uh, the catheters I can do without. But um, like the, all the nurses, they're right there if I needed them. They didn't hesitate, you know, to help me out. And, and yeah, I, I, that probably was the biggest thing was the nursing staff. At any of the hospitals I was in, they were willing to go, you know, above and beyond to make sure I was I was comfortable. And, and that's huge. If you're laying there and you're, you know, you're all stressed out and stuff, it's not going to help anybody. Yeah, I think yeah. I think we do have some really special. Yeah, you got some really here, good. You got some really good people special. here. Yeah. Do you have any advices as the partner of someone with a chronic, unexplained, serious disease? 
I think you have to do your own research and ask lots of questions. And sometimes you just need to get really pushy about it. So you would definitely appreciate the follow through. Yes. Yeah, even it's just, well, we, we discussed it and we're thinking it's this or we're to try this or whatever. You know? yeah. yeah. I mean, they can take all the blood out of me they want. I don't care. Well, they already do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Guys, thank you so much for uh, agreeing to come down and Oh, no sweat. Anytime you want to talk, just give me all her. It was a yeah. real pleasure. Thanks so much. So that was an interview that I had with Kim and Carol a couple of weeks ago. And now I have Barry and Steph in studio to talk through some of the issues that were raised in that interview. What did you guys think on the whole about everything that they talked about? Go ahead, Barry. I actually liked the interview. I wish I would have been here for it, but I think he, uh, they both bring up issues that are probably common to many of the patients that we've presented in these podcasts, and that's frustration until there's a diagnosis, frustration with a diagnosis. And although it's interesting medically, I think they bring a human side to these podcasts that I don't think are well appreciated. A patient that has an unusual illness or has a complex disease is also trying to live a life and trying to understand both the medical components and their uh, own life experiences and, and the uncertainty that they have to live with all the time and that we live with. We live with the uncertainty, but we don't live the life. They live the uncertainty and the life. And I think that they certainly both commendably commented the illness that was unknown and their care that was sometimes not as uh, informative as it they would have liked, but also expressing some support and hope that even the uh, even the person that they would might be least likely to solve the problem may solve the problem. I, I really enjoyed that. Yeah, I think what struck me most in hearing that interview was the uncertainty is not surprising because I think they, you know that lines up with the medical team's uncertainty. Everyone's pretty unsure, but st- even still now what's going on and, and there's some desperation, I think, that comes along with that. They're talking about internet searches and not knowing who to trust and and even not having always consistent or clear messaging from their medical team. But it's also sort of this feeling of abandonment, like they get hospitalized and they feel like a lot of things are being done. And then suddenly that hospitalization ends because he no longer requires hospitalization. But then what? Then then the clarity of the follow-up plan or whether anyone's going to do any follow-up sort of makes me reflect on on like how we're doing that and and how maybe we're not doing that. I there was a time when I had a CTU follow-up clinic here at St. Paul's Hospital where I would routinely see patients in follow-up following an admission and I no longer have that clinic and I do wonder uh, how many of the patients that I'm seeing whether it whether the whether the follow-up has to do with clarifying uncertainty or just seeing how they're coping or whatever it is. You know, I don't do that routinely, and I don't think it's done done routinely here for most of our CTU discharges. It must feel terrible to feel abandoned like that. But I think there's another aspect that they they both said, and 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 that's the courageousness of of the patient to understand that the beginning of an uh, of a medical complication or a medical event is usually such an extent that he's ended up in surgery four times. So this is not just symptoms that will suddenly make you unwell and then progress to in a staged way to uh, to allow you to get used to things he's basically living a life of possibility of a disaster a medical disaster happening at any time with no control and i think that's quite admirable the way he's uh, living his life and he's able to actually try to try to solve the problem i think he articulated something um throughout the interview that i think also i would feel which is that it is hard to wait when you don't know how long you're going to be waiting. 
even if you end up waiting just as long, like for an appointment or to follow up with the doctor. So like knowing kind of the intervals that you have to wait to get additional answers, even if those answers are negative, I think that there's some comfort and that that's a little bit easier to swallow when you know, okay, I know I'm leaving hospital, but I know that my follow-ups are in two weeks or six weeks. It's easier to wait those two weeks than you leave hospital and you're just waiting for a phone call and you don't know exactly what the next step is. But I think the uh, the other thing it illustrates, and I think uh, Steph said it, but it bears repeating, is that there's no primary consultant that's involved with his care on a regular basis. There is somebody that actually sees him periodically, but that somebody's not involved with the immediacy of the problem. So we've actually fractionated his care for understandable reasons, but from his point of view, it's not a resolution of the problem. And I think he would feel more connected if the care was connected all through one person, not parsed into two different sections. You guys have both worked in more rural settings than Vancouver. Do you think that that is a factor in terms of the fracturing of his care and his maybe lack of immediate access to all the specialists who see him in hospital here? How do you manage that when you go up to uh, you know trail and salmon arm and elsewhere? Yeah, I think it's it's hard. I mean, if if I was going to be his go to person, his internist in say like Nor- uh, Smithers, that's where I most commonly work now when I'm not here. I think it would be difficult. He's someone who I would probably just follow up on a monthly basis, even if it was just check-ins to see how he's doing. Mm -hmm. And then to there, you know, if I had exhausted my toolkit of ways to continue to work him up, I would be mainly coordinating his care between different subspecialists that he was seeing, probably down here. It would be difficult, but, but at least there I might be able to offer him some continuity or just monitoring for a new clue or a new symptom or something. You know, it, you could imagine that it might actually be a little bit easier in that context because where he's at right now, he does not have a single touch point. So I, I actually think not only does he have the, uh, the difficulty, but I think his primary care physician has difficulty. And so it's, it's not that either is abandoned. It's just there's not a coordinated one entry point, one conduit that is actually looking after him and that I think causes frustration as well so I think all of these things uh, I think he needs I mean he said it I, he just wants someone who cares and and works on trying to solve the problem not 25 people who are trying to solve the problem but one person who will take the problem on and continue to try and solve it and he's from what he said even if the problem isn't solved he'd like to feel that the person the people that are involved with his care, are continuing to try and solve the problem. And, and I think we failed them that way. I think that that's, that's a failure of our system. And it really doesn't matter if he's a block away from this hospital or a mile away or a 500 mile. It really doesn't matter. I mean, especially today when our communication systems are such that it doesn't matter. We just haven't set it up for him. So we know a lot of the, the different physicians that are involved in his care. And I think that Actually, we, we happen to know that they're very caring, very thoughtful, very. And, and behind the scenes are probably thinking about him pretty constantly. But I imagine that they, like us, when we were trying to take care of him, at some point you actually do reach an end of your diagnostic know-how and you 
can um, farm out some of that work up to subspecialists. But over the course of a really long time, you're going to run out of, I think you may run out of things to do each time you see a complicated patient like this. And he was saying, when someone says, I don't know, that feels like they're giving up. How do you guys, you you have both, I'm sure, seen patients where you have worked them up and you have reached the end of the diagnostic road. How do you have that conversation so that it doesn't feel like you're saying, I'm giving up? I don't think Barry ever gets to the end of the road. I think that the, the patient <laughs> okay. says, I yeah. give up before Barry says, I'm giving up. I, I have, I think, gotten to the end of the road a couple of times. Mercifully, it doesn't happen that often. But at that point, there are probably so many other subspecialists involved that I maybe I assume or I take it for granted that those people have picked up the ball and are continuing to run with it. But it must it must be incredibly uncomfortable just to say to someone, I'm done. I, I don't have anything more to offer. Just thankfully, it doesn't happen that often. And I would say that even though you might feel that at times, I don't I think you always have something to offer. I mean, it's a bit like solitaire. You can shuffle the deck over and over and over again, and, and suddenly something appears. Even if you were, uh, even if you'd seen it a hundred times and you didn't, and you thought that that wasn't the answer. So I think that there is there is a value of coming to the end within yourself, and then revisiting that over and over again. Because I think recognizing you've come to your end usually does means that you're you're continuing to think about the problem and you see a different way even though you've decided that that was the end you actually see a different way and many times I don't know many but sometimes I feel that that familiarity with the problem actually allows me to step into it a little bit deeper even though I feel frustrated and that I feel that at some points the problem won't get solved anymore by myself or anybody else there is another way and it's either contextual, situational, things change, you read something, you see something, you hear something. So I don't, I think that all he's asking for is someone to continue to think about the problem, not to really be a magician. That solitaire simile was surprisingly accurate. That was bang on. (laughs) So what do you think about the idea that like it was his impression that the team was rarely on the same page or that people were coming in saying different things on the same day? How do you guys manage well, that well, with your own I, let, teams? Let me respond to that. I, I think that, first of all, you have to define the team. I mean, since there are so many players on the team, and even the players on the team don't talk to each other, and the players are at different understanding levels of the situation, anybody that says anything is becomes a participant in the, in the solution or the problem. Right. And so, you know, if, if we put ourselves on the other side of the equation and we were having people come into our room and talk about, anything. We'd get five different observations from five different people because, number one, they wouldn't have talked to each other. Number two, they had a different understanding. Well, I thought I was in here just to whatever. And so when you're the patient, you're just waiting for someone to come and give you a some sort of information that lines up with the other pieces of information you have. And I think that happens all the time. You know, my, my own reflection about that is when I you know, I, when I started here as an attending physician, I often worried that I was going to be stepping on the resident's toes, and I, I didn't want to be too hands-on um, with the patients that I was seeing. And at some point, I had a chat about this. This was in the first few months that I was here as an attending, and, and I chatted about it with Barry. And he said, you know, I, I asked him about this specific problem that I was having, and he said, you know, I see every patient every day. And I thought, okay, well, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm glancing at every patient every day, but 
now I, I do, and since that time, I do see every patient every day. And some of them, it is a very quick, like literally peek into the room and make sure that everyone is still breathing. But for a patient like this, one of the reasons that I see them every day is in part to clarify all the communication mishaps and miscommunications and, and misapprehensions that have been going on over the previous 24 hours. So someone like this, I would sit down with and sort of debrief on the previous 24 hours or the overall picture, certainly once a day. And I think that is probably the role of the attending physician. So if, if there are any other sort of more senior uh, trainees or attending level people listening to this, people uh, getting ready to become solo practitioners, I would strongly encourage them to make it a practice to pop in and see definitely a patient like this who's complex themselves every day, in part just to clear up these communication foibles. I think that was that was something that I was shocked by as a fellow was usually because on rheumatology, I definitely had more time than the uh, than the internal medicine team did have with the patients just because of the, the caseload. And every single patient, I would usually just, just ask, what's your understanding of why you're admitted to hospital or what do you understand about the plan today or what's being done for you or like who I am? Why am I here? Just just like orienting questions just so that I understand even what they're expecting from me yeah. because I know exactly what I want to do, but that's not really the most important thing for a patient in hospital. It's nice that there's stuff going on behind the curtains, but I think just like uh, Kim and Carol were explaining, like it's important for the patients to uh, not just feel involved in their care, but actually be involved in their care. And I think most physicians would also agree with that. Like, that's important. So I was I was shocked by how frequently people were pretty vague or sketchy on the details of even, like, why they were still admitted to hospital mm-hmm. or why they were not allowed certain medications or food, things like that, or, or weren't allowed to walk around. I found that to be surprising. Even this, this guy here, how, I mean, how many days would you estimate he's been in hospital in the last year? Ooh, in the last year? In the last two years, three months. Sure. And his understanding now of his problem is pretty superficial. It may also be that our collective understanding of the problem isn't very good, but, yeah. you know, the terms that he uses, it makes it sound like things are still very confusing to him. And that, for someone who's, who has been so invested and involved in his own healthcare over the last couple of years, it's a shocking level of under, understanding. And I think the other primary issue that he brings up is that even in a straightforward problem, which may not be straightforward because nothing has been straightforward with him, but his present issue isn't the exploding organs issue. The present issue is he can't move along. Yeah. And he can't walk and he's out of breath. So that seems like a more solvable problem than the other bigger problem. Maybe it isn't. And that would be the, I would understand if he understood that we couldn't solve these other disasters that, that occur when it, and, and happen to him, but I would be less forgiving of ourselves if we can't solve this problem of why he can't breathe. And, and I think that's, yeah. to me... That's an interesting point, because like you, you think it, it, when he goes in to see any of his various doctors, like low down on the list is is like the, like, what uh, how's your day going? Yeah. The ADLs, IADLs um, of his case are, are dwarfed by the bigger picture of like any moment your organs could explode but you're right that like the day-to-day for him is actually the really hard part he is actually pretty uh, he hasn't he certainly i didn't get the sense that he was had entirely come to terms with the fact that he was 
a sick person or that there was uncertainty in his case, but he definitely seemed to be able to manage that reasonably well. That was not the thing that was bothering him the most, right? He articulated that right at the beginning. But that's that I think is the part that surprised me before is because be, between these episodes, he was fine. And he would say he was fine. He went to work. He did these things. Now he's between the episodes and he's not fine. And that's what we heard. The frustration was that he's not fine. And I agree with you, Danny, that I think he'll see people who are actually interested in trying to solve the problem, but not his problem right now. The bigger problem or the problem, whatever that bigger problem is, but he can't breathe. Yeah, and, and as I heard that, because that's not maybe I don't maybe I'm misremembering this case, but it made me feel like you know, as like your solitaire analogy, like is that actually the the, the piece that that may help us solve this mystery? Like I feel like I need to get him back in clinic yeah. and take a crack at him myself. He dropped a couple of so he said that, and he also said that his, his the bottoms of his feet were numb. Yeah, and no, those were definitely like not specifically part of his medical history. Yeah, or case. A good chance that those aren't like the the thing that's going to crack it open. But you're right; it, it could be that could be the it could like be. the the periaortic stranding. Like that came out of nowhere. No one was expecting that. But uh, that was helpful in establishing some confidence in the diagnosis of like SSV, some sort of vasculitis that precipitated cyclo and now rituximab for this guy so mm-hmm. you're right like all of these different um, issues definitely need to be taken as potentially new relevant symptoms i mean we're all a product of our own experiences hopefully we're a product of some of the evidence but our experiences probably outweigh the evidence sometimes and i'm reminded not so much of his case of the understanding that I'm listening, I'm listening, I'm listening to things that I think are irrelevant to the solution of the problem when all the time the relevance just escapes me because I didn't actually quite understand the problem. Right. And I don't listen. I hear, but I don't listen. I listen patiently until I can get to the things I really want to ask about because that's really going to solve the problem. And I have to catch myself sometimes and remind myself that Maybe if I listened and just didn't hear, I might actually be understanding more of the problem. All right. Thanks to both of you for uh, having a chat. That's the end of today's episode. We'll be back with some more unusual cases next time. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Danny. Thanks.